From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Hello and welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. He will be back with you tomorrow. My pleasure to be with you today on this journey through the news of the day. Today on the program, still more banks are failing. In terms of total assets, we now have more failures in 2023 than we experienced during the economic collapse of 2008. What does it all mean? We'll talk about that. Also, Utah passed legislation requiring age verification for porn websites before they can be visited. Now, the response from one of the largest pornography providers on the internet might surprise you, and it might be exactly what Utah was hoping for. We'll talk about what that porn site did uh, coming up later in the program. In addition, the Biden administration takes steps to punish schools that prevent boys from participating in women's sports. And the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom has some recommendations for ways to protect religious freedom around the world. All of that coming up on the program. But first, our headline for today. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden will meet one week from today for debt ceiling and budget talks. Marking the first time since February, the two leaders discuss these issues at length. Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democrat leader, continued to blast the House budget, which raises the debt ceiling, but also brings $4.8 trillion in deficit reduction. President Biden insists he will veto the measure should it hit his desk, But with the debt ceiling limit hitting possibly as soon as June 1st, will he reconsider? Joining me now to discuss all of it is Congressman Ron Estes. He serves on the House Ways and Means Committee, the House Budget Committee, and the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Kansas. Congressman Estes, good to see you today. It's good seeing you, too. What are your thoughts on the, uh, the House Republican approach to the debt ceiling? Well, I think we did we did what we were supposed to do. The Republicans in the House uh, voted to to extend the debt uh, limit for the United States government. But the issue is it's not whether you raise the debt ceiling, but whether you you address the overspending. You know, this fiscal year, we're going to spend one and a half trillion dollars more than we bring in as revenue. That means one out of every five dollars that the federal government spends is going to be borrowed. And so what we tried to do is say, let, let's address the debt ceiling in the short term, but let's also start to address the overspending that we've got going on. So, so the Limit, Save, and Grow Act was focused on, on not only addressing the debt ceiling as well, but also looking at how can we make some common sense reforms, make sure that we address some of the issues out there that have been spent. For example, there's money out there that was appropriated for the COVID emergency that you know, is now ending. I mean, yes, COVID's around and, and people will continue to get infected, but, but the catastrophic aspects of it are over. So why do we have that $50, $60 billion that's out there that, uh, unspent? So let, let's rein that back in. Let's, let's look at things like uh, uh, what do we do with work requirements for uh, welfare benefits that go out to individuals? You know, Americans are, are very charitable uh, people. We, we, we like to protect people that need, that need a hand up. But let's focus on if you're able-bodied and you don't have children, you should also commit to work for 20 hours a week to help make sure that you 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 uh, in, earn those benefits that you're getting while you're getting that end up. As I mentioned, the House budget contains $4.8 trillion in deficit reduction. What you described there for many people would seem reasonable, but President Biden and the Democrats, they have a different perspective on that. He referred to what's being referred, what's being called from the House as the Limit, Save, and Grow Act. He talked about it as a form of hostage taking. Let's play clip three. America is not a deadbeat nation. We have never, ever failed to meet the debt. Now, as a result, one of the most respected nations of the world, we pay our bills. And we should do so without reckless hostage taking from some of the mega Republicans in Congress. Congressman Estes, do you have any sense of what he's referring to when he talks about uh, hostage taking from Republicans? You know, I, I don't know how he what what term he's using to, to uh, or what justification he's using to talk about that. I mean, we're talking about some common sense things that help address the, the issues that we have out there. The debt occurs because you spend more money than what comes in as revenue. And, and you know, it's, it's been 90 days today 
since President Biden met with Speaker McCarthy, and President hasn't done anything since then. We focused on passing a bill last week to make sure that we got the process started. We we're trying to do our work in the House, and now it's up to President Biden and Senator Schumer to actually focus on, on stepping up and making sure that uh, we do protect Social Security payments to American citizens, that we do protect paychecks to our, our servicemen and women. And, and they've got a job to do now that we've done our work in the House. Of course, that House budget is going to the Senate for consideration. Senator Patty Murray, who's one of the Democrats in the Senate that will be considering this, uh, in discussing the proposal, she was more specific than President Biden was there. Let's play clip eight. The Megan Republicans would pull cops off our streets, drive a wrecking ball through our border security, making it easier for deadly fentanyl to flood our streets. Congressman Estes, she says there that the House budget is going to drive a wrecking ball through border security and therefore allow fentanyl into the country. Where is that coming from? Well, what we what we proposed in there was that we use for fiscal year 24 the same spending levels that we had in fiscal year 22. So that's just 18 months ago at the spending rate that we had at the federal government. If that's a wrecking ball, I don't know what she's thinking about happened 18 months ago because that's the level that we wanted to spend at for uh, 2024 moving forward so that we actually do start to at least bend the curve and, and actually get some of this overspending in control. Now, a game of chicken seems to be forming between House Republicans and the White House and Democrats in the Senate. We know that House Republicans negotiated hard with Speaker McCarthy during the Speaker election. Do you expect uh, that same kind of conviction in the Republican caucus generally out of the House when it comes to these negotiations over the debt limit? I, I think it's, it's very important for us as a conference that we've talked about a lot of issues on, on the Republicans uh, in the House, and we've talked about what we need to do to help make uh, address the problems that are going forward. And as, as I said earlier, you know, we're borrowing one out of five dollars that we spend at, at the federal government. So we've got to address the overspending. And that was what we were trying to push in. And there's a, a strong commitment amongst the Republicans that that we need to make sure that we do more. I don't expect us to solve this in one year. I mean, it's been multiple years that have been built up to get our debt limit to to the $31 trillion that it's at right now. But at least we're starting the process so that over the next year, we'll be in better shape and be able to focus on what do we do going forward for the, the next 10 years. Congressman, you mentioned there that one in $5 that we spend as a country is borrowed. Now, of course, Analogies between household budgets and the federal government's budget are imperfect, but we can imagine that if on our family budget, 20% of what we spent in a month was put on a credit card, that couldn't last very long before it created a crisis. That seems intuitive. That seems to be a message that the American people would understand. But do you have a sense of how the American public are feeling about this particular debt limit debate? Do they want to see cuts or do we all just want as much as we can get from the government? Yeah, I, I think the issue gets gets muddied up because of the the misinformation that comes out of of the Democrats, particularly in the Senate and and President Biden. I mean, the focus, your, your analogy is right. I mean, we can't go pay off one credit card with another credit card. That's just not sustainable over time. So we've got to make and to do the common sense decisions around what it is we're going to spend and, and make sure that we get our spending in line with the revenue that comes in uh, so that we can pay our debts and we can make sure that we're not the, uh, the, the debtor nation that uh, President Biden referred to in his, in his comments. Congressman, let's put this in context. Let's look down the road a, a bit. If the White House gets their way, if they can continue to raise the debt ceiling and actually avoid even future debates where we just have unlimited borrowing power and Congress approves that uh, into infinity and beyond, um, what does that look like in the future when it's not one in $5 that is being borrowed that we spend, it's one in $3 that's being borrowed that we spend? What does that mean for the country long term if we continue down this economic path? It, it really is not sustainable. I mean, this year we, we're spending uh, $1.5 trillion more than what was coming in as revenue. 
President budget, or President Biden proposed in his budget next year to spend $1.8 trillion more. It doesn't look at all in terms of cutting some of that spending and that excess. We just can't continue down this route of mortgaging our kids and grandkids' future just to be able to spend money today for the things that we want. Uh, we've got to focus on this. It's our responsibility as elected leaders that we go out and we address the, the, the right and appropriate and common sense decisions around what do we do to, to spend at the federal level, uh, what kind of issues we want to address, what kind of revenue we want to make sure that uh, we can obtain from a growing economy. The more the federal government borrows means there's less to invest in businesses. That means there's fewer jobs, fewer opportunities for the future. So we, we've got to address this now. We've got to focus on how do we make this better. As I mentioned at the top of the program, President Biden has now invited congressional leadership uh, to discuss this. Previously, he'd mentioned that he didn't intend to have those kind of conversations. Do you see this as a sign of progress that all the uh, the four corners of Congress and the White House are going to get together and reach an agreement that everyone is happy with? It is a sign of progress. I mean, at least the president's now doing something. You know, it's been 90 days since he met with uh, Speaker McCarthy and, and said at that point in time, we'll meet again. It's been 90 days and now he's scheduling a meeting for next week. So hopefully that, uh, that leads to a resolution. I mean, the president's got to do some, some work now. Uh, the Senate's got to do some work. We've addressed it on the House side and we've got to sit down and, and focus to come up with a sit, uh, common sense solution that works for the American people. Now, Congressman Estes, I want to uh, change topics with you in the last uh, here. Yesterday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre claimed that illegal immigration was down 90 percent in the Biden administration. Let's go ahead and play clip four, and then I want to give you a chance to respond. We actually deal with the immigration system in a humane way. Uh, and in a, in a way that is uh, uh, that actually deals with what we're seeing at the border. And that's why you've seen the parolee program be so successful. Uh, it has, it has, um, it has uh, uh, when it comes to illegal migration, you've seen it come down uh, by more than 90 percent. And that's because of this act, the actions that this president has taken. Congressman Estes, your reaction to that? That's just not true. I mean, the administration needs to, to stop lying to the American people about what's going on with the border. You know, when President Biden came into office in January of 2021, uh, there were 78,000 people that crossed the border. And that was up from the last few years when President Trump was in office. This past March, in the, under President Biden, there was 191,000 people that came across the border illegally. Now, what she tried to walk back today was, well, she meant four different countries had uh, fewer people come across the border. But the truth of the matter is, there's more terrorists that come across the border. There's more gang members that are coming across the border. There's more fentanyl coming across the border. All of this under President Biden's watch. And, and they're not telling the truth to American people about how, how they're failing to protect our country. Congressman Ron Estes, uh, we will talk about this again. These are important stories that are not going away soon, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up on the other side, the latest bank collapse has many wondering, could this be 2008 all over again? We certainly hope not, but there are concerning signs and we will discuss all of it when we come back right after the break. Stay with us. Today, more than ever, men need a reminder of what biblical manhood looks like and to understand God's good design for them, to serve as provider, instructor, battle buddy, defender, and chaplain. They need a battle plan to truly live out their role. Family Research Council's Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin and Dr. Keenan Kirtan's book, Strong and Courageous, a sequel to Man to Man, offers this battle plan so that men can pursue their God-given responsibility in a culture quickly turning away from God's design. The authors unpack the Old Testament book of Joshua as the focus of their study, asking readers to look to his leadership to help consider and apply the key principles of biblical manhood. It's time for men to accept their role in the family and community and truly embrace the their God-given purpose. To order your copy of Strong and Courageous, A Call to Biblical Manhood, go to frc.org slash strongandcourageous. Again, that's frc.org slash strongandcourageous. 
Christians must be sure to faithfully think about the issues that have taken our culture and many of our churches by storm from a biblical perspective. Family Research Council's David Clawson, along with co-authors Denny Burke and Colin Smothers, released a new book, Male and Female, He Created Them, a study on gender, sexuality, and marriage to help Christians better grasp the Bible's teaching about these issues. This study presents a biblical view of homosexuality, transgenderism, and marriage. With this new resource, readers will be given guidance on specific questions related to preferred pronouns, identity, intersex conditions, and other matters that our churches must be disciples their members to respond to with love and biblical conviction. As part of the study, readers have access to supplemental videos by Dr. Albert Moeller, Dr. Heath Lambert, Reverend H.B. Charles, Dr. Christopher Yuan, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, and others that expand and elaborate the themes of each chapter. To purchase a copy, go to hecreatedthem.org. Today we find that global persecutions of Christians is growing more menacing every year. Family Research Council's Leela Gilbert, Ariel Del Turco, and Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin's book, Heroic Faith, shares personal stories from those who have endured religious persecution and gives a close look at the dire situations Christians often face due to dangerous and sometimes deadly opposition to their faith. The book's true stories of persistence and faithfulness amidst crisis offer inspiration and hope. Heroic Faith also provides insights into the ideologies driving the hostility and persecution, what steps the U.S. government might take to help, and how readers can best respond to the struggles of the faithful. It is critical for us to learn from our brothers and sisters who are suffering deeply and to do whatever we can to help. You can get your copy of Heroic Faith wherever books are sold or by going to frc.org slash heroic faith. Again, that's frc.org slash heroic faith. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in Fort Tony today. The months-long banking crisis claimed another institution yesterday when First Republic Bank was seized by regulators and sold to J.P. Morgan Chase, the second largest bank collapse in U.S. history. As with the other bank failures this year, First Republic's assets were battered by rising interest rates enacted by the Federal Reserve in response to continued inflation, as well as potential mismanagement by the bank itself. This latest downfall has weary depositors and investors asking what to expect in the coming months. Joining me now to discuss it is Joel Griffith. He's a research fellow in the Thomas A. Rowe Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Joel, welcome to Washington Watch. Thanks for having me tonight, Joseph. It's good to have you. Tell us a bit about what happened with First Republic Bank. Well, what happened with First Republic is very similar to what happened with PBNY and SVB over the last few months. We saw these banks, they took in trillions of dollars of new deposits over the past two years from all the trillions of dollars that were printed. And they parked a lot of those investments in things like government bonds. Well, you know, what happens to the value of a government bond when interest rates grow up? Well, the value of the bond actually goes down. And that's also really a reflection of the fact that investors are realizing that when they're buying these promises from the government to repay the debt, they're realizing that those dollars are going to be worth a lot less going forward because of inflation. And so those banks, when it came down to it, they saw a lot of their assets diminish in value. And as depositors started catching on to that and requesting that the bank give them their deposits back, people began to realize that there was just no way this bank would be able to honor all of those deposits. The deposits exceeded the amount of assets the bank actually had. And that is why that bank as well has now gone under. Now, Joel, if it's true that government policy is crushing the value of the assets of these banks, why aren't we seeing more of this happen? Well, the panic thus far has been contained. And indeed, when it comes to these different banks, there are different concentrations at every bank in these different investment classes. First Republic, SVB, and Signature Bank, those were the uh, three of the banks with the highest amount of concentrations in that government debt. And what banks typically try to do, if they're being smart, they'll match the deposits with shorter term investments. What you've seen right now, when you have banks putting so many of these deposit dollars in longer term assets, 
those are very sensitive to interest rate fluctuations. And unfortunately, a lot of our so-called experts in this country were not predicting that we would have such rampant inflation, and thus they weren't predicting that the Federal Reserve would react in kind. Now, a lot of free market economists, such as myself, were warning over the past few years that if you have government spending out of control and you rely on a central bank to print new dollars, eventually you're going to have a big problem. And that big problem is called inflation. And that's what's happening now. But, you know, a lot of politicians, both Republicans and Democrats, they still are refusing to actually address this risk going forward. Now, Joel, J.P. Morgan Chase is going to pay $10.6 billion for Republic Bank's assets. However, the FDIC is giving $13 billion to J.P. Morgan Chase to do this. Explain why this makes sense. All right. So when you have a bank, you've got the you have assets, which are things like the loans that a bank makes or investments such as real estate or government bonds. And then you have liabilities. Liabilities are actually the deposits, what the banks own us as depositors. Well, in this instance, J.P. Morgan is going to go ahead and take and retain those deposits because it's going to retain the assets. And yet the government is going to pay 80 percent of the losses if they materialize. And if that strikes you as quite odd or unfair, well, it's because it is very unusual and it is very unfair. In effect, we're socializing the losses and privatizing the gains. And J.P. Morgan themselves have said now that they anticipate several billion dollars worth of additional income over the next several years thanks to this sweetheart deal that they got paid for by all of us the taxpayers well i i do sit here wishing that the federal government had given me the opportunity to take over this bank under those terms because that would be indeed life-changing and there's not many of us who would turn that deal down uh a very low risk proposition uh but very quickly, uh, White House Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked by a reporter about the optimism that President Biden has expressed earlier in the day about the banking system. Here's what she said. Let's play clip six. We have taken decisive and forceful actions these past several weeks uh, to make sure that that uh, that uh, the banking system is uh, is uh, is in a is in a you know is in a stable position, and that's what you've seen this uh, this administration. So is the banking system in a stable position, Joel? No. In fact, I challenge any of the viewers uh, watching now, go look up ticker symbol KRE. KRE is basically the index of all of the regional banks across this country. That index was down another five plus percentage points today. It's down, I believe, more than 30 percent over the last few months. And that's because investors are realizing that our smaller banks are not doing so well. The guys at the top, like J.P. Morgan, they're going to continue to be able to gobble up these smaller banks that go under. But these smaller banks are in big shape and are bad shape. And part of the reason why is you have bailouts for some, no bailouts for others. It seems as if the regulators are making things up as they go. And let's not forget, too, when we think about these big banks that went under, the Biden administration keeps claiming there were no bailouts. But there were bailouts. Investors know, depositors know that only the first $250,000 of deposits are actually insured. And that basic insurance stops at $250,000 because we understand that you should have depositors making sure, when they're wealthy especially, that the banks are actually on solid footing. We were taking away that moral hazard. And in all these banks that have gone under, we've actually made whole all of the depositors even the billionaires have been made whole in this, and that's come at our expense, regular middle-class taxpayers. Joel, in about 30 seconds, have we seen the end of this, or is there more where this came from? Unfortunately, there's likely more where this is coming from, and that's because we're just beginning to see the impact of the softening real estate market. A lot of banks have made trillions of dollars worth of loans in the commercial real estate, not just home mortgages, and commercial real estate prices are actually plunging right now, meaning that those loans are probably not worth nearly as much as these banks were anticipating. Joel Griffith, Thomas Aro Institute for Economic Policy Studies at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. So on that depressing note, we'll come back on the other side with some good news. A Utah regulation, legislation, that restricts children from accessing pornography on the internet has caused one of the world's largest pornography sites to, black, to block access to 
pornography on their website in the state of Utah. Is this the path forward for those trying to protect us from online smut? We'll talk about it when we come back. Men are constantly told that there is no place for their thoughts and concerns about abortion. However, this attitude ignores the fact that both women and men are deeply and personally affected by abortion. Furthermore, one does not have to be a woman to know that abortion ends the life of an innocent, unborn child. Every man has a role to play in protecting unborn lives and supporting the mothers in their families and greater community, which is why FRC's Center for Human Dignity has released a resource titled A Man's Guide to Standing for Life. This resource was created to help men positively address the topic of life. This guide will equip men with phrases to utilize or avoid, as well as practical tips for helping to protect life and the expectant mother or unborn child he knows. Every man has the opportunity to be an unborn baby's hero by stepping in to support a mother and speaking up for her child's life. Get this free guide at frc.org slash men to learn more about the important role men play in protecting unborn lives. Have you seen the Now We Live series? It is a six-week worldview Bible study created in partnership with Family Research Council and Summit Ministries. This video series was put together to help Christians propel faith into action. It offers six free videos to prompt rich discussions about some of life's most foundational questions among churches, small groups, and families. Each video is led by well-known Christian voices and addresses questions regarding worldview, Jesus, truth, identity, and society. It's so important for Christians to both know the truth and to live in a way that is compatible with the truth. Being grounded in what is true and living out God's grace allows a believer's faith to truly transform one's own life and ultimately help transform a broken world. Equip yourself and other Christians to learn more about what it means to truly hold a biblical worldview. Access this important series by going to frc.org worldview. Again, go to frc.org worldview. Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. The website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can find this and every episode whenever it is most convenient for you. One of the largest and most visited pornography websites on the internet has blocked access to its site in the state of Utah, a move taken to protest the state's Senate Bill 287. This law requires internet pornography peddlers to verify that only adults are accessing their sites. Could this legislation in Utah, as well as a national push requiring certain online services to restrict access to minors on their platforms, reshape the online access for children, as well as usher in a new age verification internet for all? Joining me now to discuss it is Michael Toscano, Executive Director of the Institute for Family Studies. Michael, welcome to Washington Watch. Delighted to be with you, Joseph. Good to see you. Tell us a bit more about Utah's Senate Bill 287. Utah has put itself forward as a leader for governing the internet on behalf of the American family. Under the leadership of Governor Spencer Cox, he has decided that he was going to challenge the powers of big tech in Silicon Valley and big porn with uh, a raft of legislation that would require these companies to verify the age of its users before admitting access. And it's sending shockwaves across the country. Legislatures across the the country are looking at it, as well as on the federal level. It's a remarkable watershed in the history of this country. Was this difficult to get through the legislature there in Utah? How did it get to the, through the legislature? I would say bravery. Um, as uh, brave men and women who were uncowed by the lobby, uh, the lobbyists that were uh, whispering in their ear, telling them that uh, this would be an invasion of privacy or that this would be too burdensome for their companies. And it, legislation, good policy is a matter of balancing interests. And the, uh, the legislators in Utah decided that they were going to balance uh, their laws in favor of American families. And I think that was the right choice. If these pornography websites were telling legislators in Utah that this legislation would make it too burdensome for them to distribute their product, 
Isn't that, in fact, the goal of this legislation? So are they signaling this is exactly how to frustrate us and make us stop? Yeah, and th there are some several other admissions uh, there as well, including the fact that they're acknowledging that a, a very large share of the of their traffic comes from underage users. Yeah. They're worried. Pornhub is worried uh, as uh, one of its um, uh, senior officials admitted online just yesterday, it's worried that its traffic could decrease in Utah by 50%. And part of that concern is uh, from their perspective that its uh, age verification is enough of a block for people to decide not to go on a porn site. But it also uh, is an admission that many of the people that are going on their site are underage to begin with. This is obviously a bad thing. And uh, it's uh, only uh, a sign of the effectiveness of this legislation that Pornhub uh, has decided that it was gonna play hardball by withdrawing its, uh, its platform altogether from, from Utah. So to that point, Pornhub responds to this legislation by saying, we are not going to allow access to our site from this state. What is the fallout of that decision, do you think? Uh, hopefully the fallout is that Pornhub will not be allowed to offer <laughs> its, its content in Utah. And I, I have a feeling uh, from what I know of the legislators in Utah that they're not too disturbed by this development. Uh, obviously, they are um, and acknowledging the free speech uh, component of this issue from a constitutional perspective, their law does nothing to stop uh, a, a user over the age of 18 from gaining access. It's Pornhub's decision to bar it from everyone. So in that sense, legally, Utah is totally in the clear. They made a decision to require that underage users be restricted. And so if Pornhub, I'm sure, I'm sure they're just fine with Pornhub's nuclear option. Well, unfortunately, uh, Pornhub is just a very small piece of the pornography industry online. And it's not that pornography will not be available. Is there any reason to think that that decision might spread? Well, the indicators are uh, fairly good that it, that it, it very well could because Pornhub's reasoning was that it was gonna to be too costly and that it was gonna decrease their traffic too much for it to be worth them to invest in having their material online in Utah. If it becomes cost prohibitive for porn sites to offer these materials online in Utah, then, then we can expect that, uh, or we can anticipate that some might make the same decision. But if not, at the very least, we know that this legislation will do its very best to keep minors off of those sites. So it's a win-win situation either way. Michael, in about 30 seconds, um, this is a, uh, a battle with many fronts. Are there other things that policymakers should be doing to stop the distribution of online pornography, especially to children? Well, I would think that, that what they should do is they, they should actually enforce the existing obscenity law. The existing obscenity law does not permit websites or, or any other producers of media to provide underage Americans with obscene content. The problem is a lack of enforcement. And I think what you see from Pornhub is they don't believe that that will be a problem any longer in Utah, that Utah is very serious. And so they're withdrawing. And I encourage other states to do the same thing and to show that they are serious about this obscenity problem. Michael Toscano, we appreciate your time and the update. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Coming up, the Biden administration is threatening states and schools that would not allow boys to compete with girls. We'll tell you about it. Are you prepared to pray, vote, and stand for biblical truth? It is imperative that Christians pray for their community and culture to steward their role as a citizen by voting and to stand for biblical truth. This means that Christians must be intentional about seeking after the Lord in all things. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to inspire brothers and sisters in Christ to turn their attention to the Lord first and in every compartment of their lives. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly half-hour program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. 
watch the Pray, Vote, Stand weekly broadcasts, and commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. Just go to PrayVoteStand.org. Again, that's PrayVoteStand.org. Tech censorship is on the rise. Big tech companies are attempting to cancel conservatives and Christians, which is why here at Family Research Council, we've decided to be proactive so that big tech cannot silence us completely. FRC has a text subscription platform to be sure we can continue to keep you in the loop. That way you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone. Just sign up for our text alerts by texting STAND to 67742. Again, you simply text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues that matter to you. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. You'll have access to content that will help you continue to stand for faith, family, and freedom. And you'll know about opportunities to connect with like-minded communities. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Finding a quality news source today in this media-saturated world can be incredibly difficult. It is important to stay informed on what is going on in the world, but you need a news source you can trust. That is why Family Research Council created The Washington Stand, an online news platform with a mission to provide readers with free factual news stories, and commentaries all from a biblical worldview. Based in Washington, D.C., our reporters provide reliable information on the most crucial issues of the day, ranging from breaking news on the hottest Supreme Court decisions to details on the latest public education stories, updates to domestic and international religious liberty cases, and more. We want you and your family to stay informed on what is happening in the world that affects faith, family, and freedom. Be encouraged. Be in the know. And stand firm in truth by visiting WashingtonStand.com today. That's WashingtonStand.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. Last month, the Biden administration released new Title IX rules that prevent schools from enforcing policies that ban biological males from competing in female sports. The Department of Education's proposed amendments to Title IX also allows the federal government to investigate and withhold funding from schools that violate the rule. This comes even as an increasing number of prominent female athletes and commentators are speaking out in defense of female sports. Joining me now to discuss all of it is FRC Senior Fellow for Education Studies, Meg Kilgannon. Meg, good to see you today. Great to see you, Joseph. Now, you've had a chance to peruse these proposed rule changes. What is the Biden administration trying to do? Well, they're sending a very large signal to women that um, our experiences in sports are not important to them and that the whole idea of Title IX as a concept um, of protecting the rights of women and men based on biological sex now we have to, according to the Biden administration, view this through the paradigm of uh, gender identity. And so if a woman can prove that it's educationally necessary, and if she can prove that it does not hurt the quote unquote transgender athletes, then maybe the Department of Education would approve a rule that would allow women to have sports just for themselves. So this is a this is a huge setback. This is not a progressive policy. This is a regressive policy. Now, you just hinted at a couple of exceptions that perhaps exist in these rules. If there's some kind of burden of proof on a school uh, to prove no harm, if they want to have female only sports, what would that burden right. of proof require? Well, your your guess is as good as mine. I mean, you'd have to try to to imagine the feelings of of a, a, a transgender student athlete to uh, ensure that they aren't hurt, I guess. Um, it, it's really, um, the interesting thing is that the the groups that are uh, promoting transgender rights, quote unquote, are very upset about these rules because they feel like that there's too much deference given to women in these rules, <laughs> which is just unbelievable. But um, the 
I think because there is some pushback from both sides on this issue, people who understand that biology is real and people who want to just imagine themselves to be anything and participate and have no limits in society whatsoever based on their own delusions. Um, the fact that both of the sides of the debate are upset that this is somehow some magical middle ground, and that's not the case at all. Uh, it's just the 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 that tiny sliver of opportunity that maybe the women could prove some necessity of having our own categories of sport, um, that even that is too much for the, the transgender community. Now, Meg, I'm going to ask a question that might seem cynical, but I don't think anything is too cynical these days. Is there a point at which this transgender lobby attempts to just repeal Title IX entirely? Because is this... Have we just gotten to the point where it's obsolete, it no longer has any purpose because anybody can be anything they want? Well, I think in this case, the, the purpose of it is that it, um, it, the way the Biden administration is imagining it, that it is only for transgender or sexual minority groups in this, in this idea, um, in, in their imagining of it, that they, the extension of civil rights to include sexual identities um, it is necessary. You must use Title IX as a wedge to enforce this on people. And so um, while it makes Title IX meaningless is the way we've always understood it and was, I, I'm sure that we could all agree that in 1972, when this was passed by Congress, no one had any idea that anyone would ever interpret sex to mean something other than male or female. This, these are the, <laughs> the way that God created us. This is the binary category that is sex. And so the fact that the Biden administration is now interpreting it this way is it does make it ridiculous. But I, I think that they must keep the rules so that they can enforce this on everyone. I think that's actually a helpful way to think about the change that has taken place. We once understood Title IX to be something to help females. Now we should understand, at least from a progressive perspective, Title IX is something to help men who think they are females. And so it still actually would serve a fundamental purpose for them. There's just a new group that it is being used on behalf of. But the, the headline here is that they want to threaten schools who would try to maintain female-only, male-only athletic competition. What are the risks for schools who might try to do that? Well, they would be um, at risk of losing their federal funding. And um, in counties like where I live in Fairfax and probably where you live, um, the school systems there are funded by property taxes and um, not, not a huge sliver of our budget comes from the federal government, but many of the poorest areas in the nation have a large portion of their school budget that is funded through Title I grants and other grants. And so the fact that they want to impose this ideology and put at risk the schools who need federal support the most is really, really obnoxious. Now, we've seen this play run in the last several months under the Biden administration. They threatened to defund a lunch program in Tampa Bay, I recall, um, and when the school asserted its First Amendment privilege, I believe that was a, a Christian school that they initially thre threatened to defund the lunch program. The Biden administration actually revoked their decision, realizing it was kind of cruel to say, we don't agree with you, so we're going to starve children, essentially, right. is what their position was. Is there any chance that something similar would happen here, that they're just kind of trying to talk a big game, but they're not actually going to cut funding for education because the public wouldn't tolerate it? I, I, you know, if your logic would hold, then they wouldn't propose this rule at all, right? If they, if they had any, if they had any idea that there was a limit to their ideas, then they wouldn't make this change to Title IX because they already released a rule last last June, uh, a notice of proposed rulemaking about the bulk of Title IX, which covered a lot more areas than just this narrow part of sports, and that comment period is over. But but the, that certainly implicated sports, but they have gone to the extra step of making this rule on sports. And so I think they're quite committed to this. And I think they are determined that we will all come to understand the rightness of their thinking and that we will all comply 
with this. That is that they are yeah. an authoritarian regime. And, you know, the beatings will continue until yeah. morale improves kind of an attitude, mm -hmm. in my opinion. So yeah. I, I think they're going all out for this. It's in the Biden campaign ads that are being run so far. This is this is their bread and butter are the sexuality issues. And so they're going to yeah. absolutely move forward on this. Uh, we cannot reasonably for, for all of us yeah. and probably for yeah. them. We cannot reasonably question their commitment to their perspective. For us, though, we have to decide whether we have as much commitment to the truth as they have to the lie, because they are very convicted. Now, Meg, with this particular rule that we're discussing right now, it has to do with uh, sports competition. Any other implications for this rule, or is it narrowly focused on sports? This particular part of the rule is narrowly focused on sports, and, and there is a comment period that is open for this rule right now that ends on May 15th. So we hope that people will go to frcaction.org slash protect girls sports and tell the, tell the government what you think about this rule. Let the Biden administration know that you do think that women should have uh, the right to have sex protected, <laughs> female protected categories of sport, uh, and that um, the idea that everything should be seen through the lens of gender is is just wrong. Meg, we continue to see examples of female athletes, past and present, who are speaking out against this. Do you think that is having an impact on how the the culture is feeling about the issue? I do think so. I think that people were willing to go along somewhat with this in the early stages when it was still sort of an imaginary situation and, and the left could credibly say, well, this doesn't happen. There aren't any girls who are being denied opportunities based on this. Um, but now people are seeing what this is like. They're seeing um, many, many sports having male-bodied athletes competing against women and, and girls and those girls and women losing out. Um, losing out on monetary prizes, losing out on scholarship opportunities. And so I do think that um, that the real harms that people are seeing because of this ideology and just the fact that it's not true, <laughs> that it is not real, um, you know, at some point there, there has to be uh, a, a limit to how far this can go. Meg, so before I let you go, remind people, where, remind people where they can go to leave a comment about this at www.frcaction.org slash protect girls sports. Thank you again, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. In our final story for today, this week, the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom, also known as USERF, released its 2023 annual report documenting global developments and trends related to religious freedom throughout 2022. The report by the Independent Bipartisan Agency is designed to provide recommendations to bolster the U.S. government's promotion of freedom of religion and belief abroad. What did we learn from this year's report? Joining me now to discuss it is Ariel Del Turco. She's the director of the Center for Religious Liberty at Family Research Council. Ariel, good to see you today. Good to be with you, Jessa. So tell us what we learned in the latest report from USERF. Yeah, so the USERF reports happen every year in the spring, and they're supposed to inform the State Department's annual country of particular concern designations. And this is basically a worst in the world list where the State Department calls out the world's most prominent violators of religious freedom. Uh, so this USERF recommends these designations. This year, they recommended um, 12 countries to be placed on the country of particular concern list and 17 for the special watch list, which is like a second tier designation. Um, so I hope the State Department really takes these into account. The good thing about USERF is that because it's private, uh, because it's only uh, semi-related to the government, they can look at more factors um, related to religious freedom as opposed to have to balance religious freedom uh, concerns with all of these other priorities that the State Department has to look at when they look at our diplomacy. So USERF is really on the cutting edge, encouraging the U.S. government uh, to do the right thing and promote religious freedom, even in some of these cases where it's tricky. So this year on the State Department or on the USERF list, we see countries like China, Iran, North Korea, Pakistan, these uh, 
violators of religious freedom that are on the list a lot, but we also see countries that the State Department is a little sheepish about calling out, uh, countries like Nigeria, India, uh, countries where the State Department has really shied away from. So I hope the State Department takes USERF's concerns seriously this year. Ariel, I want you to explain that a bit more. Why would the State Department be sheepish about calling out Nigeria or India as violators of religious freedom and designating them as a country of particular concern? Yeah, so I'll take Nigeria as an example. The last year of the Trump administration, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and by extension President Trump uh, designated Nigeria a country of particular concern. This was a huge controversy in Nigeria because that's a designation they did not want. Uh, even though many, many Christians are murdered horrifically in Nigeria every single year, it is currently uh, the world's leader in deaths of Christians uh, because of religious persecution. Uh, they struggle with a lot of mob violence, a lot of terrorism that specifically targets Christians. And the Muslim majority government there has really just has not uh, taken a stand against it, has not done what they should to uh, protect Christians, to combat this terrorism, uh, this kidnapping of Christian girls that happens all the time. Um, and, but they still don't want to be called out for it, right? And the CPC list, well, mainly its function acts as naming and shaming, right? It's an embarrassing designation to get. Um, it also can have uh, sometimes economic consequences, uh, especially related to aid, what should be happening according to law um, is that when a country is designated as a country of particular concern, the U.S. government has to take one of about 15 actions against that country. Some of them are financial, some aren't. But even the threat of that, I think, scares governments. But that's how we know it's an effective tool, because these governments really don't want to be listed as a CPC country. And, and the fact that they are afraid of it, as you said, is, is the reason why it's effective and why it should be used. Any reason to think that the State Department is going to uh, follow the guidance from USERF and give this designation to some of the uh, most egregious violators of international religious freedom around the world? I wish I could say yes, Joseph, but I just don't have any faith that suddenly the Biden administration is going to promote religious freedom. Uh, they have shown absolutely no concern for promoting religious freedom at home, but this extends abroad, even though the U.S. government actually has a congressional mandate through the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998 that we actually have to promote religious freedom abroad. It's uh, officially supposed to be a priority in our foreign policy, especially our human rights mechanisms. But instead, uh, we see the State Department's effort directed in all sorts of ways, uh, but really ignoring religious freedom. And that's really a shame because we have such an opportunity to be a leader in this area. And religious freedom, I mean, it's such a good American tradition that we should be exporting. Instead, the Biden administration has shown a lot of interest in exporting a woke social agenda abroad. And it's really sad, especially yeah. for these developing countries who rely on our support. Yeah, it is sad if, in fact, the Biden administration is neglecting this. I saw a story that I think is relevant earlier today where uh, the United States is giving a $500,000 grant to Pakistan to help transgender youth in that country. Um, I don't know what the good of that is going to be, but I think it's an indication of where the priorities of this administration are. Ariel Del Turco, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for being with us. It's been great to be with you again today. Tony will be back in the chair tomorrow. There's lots of trouble in the world. There will be trouble, but don't be afraid because he has overcome the world. We'll see you next time. And until then, you're God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.